0: Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Phil Hughes from the University of Leicester. Phil's just coming towards the end of his PhD, which has been looking at Romano British engagement with prehistoric monuments. As Phil talks about today, prehistoric monuments in Roman Britain hasn't really been a topic that's been given much attention in the past. If you look at a map of Roman Wiltshire, for example, you're not going to come across Stonehenge on there, although obviously. During the Roman occupation, people saw these monuments, they interpreted them, they interacted with them. We find Roman depositions in and around prehistoric monuments. What did this relationship actually mean? And what did it mean for how the landscape around these monuments was shaped during the Roman period? So that's what Phil's PhD is on, and that's what we're talking about today. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the time he dabbled in crucifixion. Not as in actually crucified anyone, but just wrote an article on it. We also talk about Phil's recent stint with the Portable Antiquity Scheme and the satisfaction he got from doing something away from the PhD, but still in an archaeological vein, where a member of the public would bring something in and he'd have to look it up and try to identify what the object is, how to interpret it, the date of it, the historical context, and then put it into the PAS database. And the kind of satisfaction of going from that starting point to the end point. And also, as well, the appreciation that he's gained for Roman coins during his time there. Also as well, we'll be talking about Leicester's participation in the upcoming Winckelmann Cup. For those of you who don't know, as Phil talks about today, the Winckelmann Cup is an annual football tournament which is held well, in in different countries. This year it's going to be in Belgium and it brings together archaeologists from, I suppose, across the world, really, primarily from across Europe, people who work for commercial units, who work for universities, uh, teams of people coming together, playing in this, this tournament, but also alongside that, as is often the case in archaeology, drinking a lot of beer and generally just having a good time. But as he says, it's a good way of of meeting archaeologists from different backgrounds, from different looking at different periods, different approaches to archaeology, and getting to know people in a way that's kind of outside of the traditional format of academia or or archaeology as as we tend to think of it. So thank you for joining me and on to the show. Start off with, with what's the deal with the football tournament?
1: <laughs> the uh, the, the Winkum Winkup or the Winkum Cup, I suppose, would be the, the proper pronunciation. It's um, it's something that the University of Leicester and ULAS, which is the commercial unit, and next to the um, the archaeological department here, have participated in for three years now. And it's um, it's a European archaeology football tournament which. Has been running, I think, since about 1991. It was set up um, by German archaeologists, kind of, and all the all the participants are from commercial archaeology and academic research departments. And basically, they meet up every year for a weekend and have have a football tournament against each other. And you know, inevitably, it's there's, there's camping involved. There's a, a lot of drinking beer, <laughs> as well, of course. Um, yeah, inevitably, yeah, but it's um, it's really, really good fun. Um, and you, you get a mix if you get some teams that take it very, very seriously, and some are, are really, really good. Where um, we don't take it too seriously, and w- we're not very good either. So uh, we we finished about thirtieth out of maybe forty-five last year. So bad. Uh, Could be a lot worse. So it was it was in Leipzig. Uh, last year and, and and we were we were really fortunate actually. So we, we drove down um from Leicester to, to Dover, got the ferry to Calais, and then drove from Calais right across to to Leipzig and then played in the tournament and then afterwards went um across to a, a very small little place in Germany called Kassel explored that, camped overnight there. And then um and then we camped over in the, right in the southern tip of the Netherlands and then spent a day in
0: Aachen, which is absolutely glorious. Oh, I went to Aachen on a school trip when I was in year eight. And at the time, I did not give a crap. <laughs> and in retrospect, I really, really regretted that. I had to go back since so like, obviously, you know, it's really famous as the seat of um, Charlemagne. It's Charlemagne, right? Yeah. 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 But it's, you know, it is, it is a really important city, particularly for for German history and in the history of the Roman Empire. And at the time I was like 12 or 13 and we got the coach at midnight and drove overnight to get there. And obviously being a bunch of like younger teenagers, none of us actually slept. So by the time we got to Arkan halfway through the day, everyone was just so tired yeah. and just didn't really care about being there, which I, I need to go back sometime now. But oh, that sounds really great.
1: I was just going to say, yeah, absolutely. I think I would have probably been the same if you'd have transplanted me there on a school trip when I was 13. That would have been completely disinterested whereas now you know we you've got a look at the, the historical buildings the seat of charlemagne the church it's all absolutely brilliant some of the museums are, are completely fabulous <laughs> I, i'm not sure i um covered myself in glory entirely because it was well it was during the summer last year it was during june when the world cup was on and there was an england game that day and we were playing columbia and so i um i was just wearing an england shirt and then i decided i was going to part off from the group and go on a wonder and explore things on my own. And I did get some some very, very funny looks uh-huh. um, walk, walking around Aachen on my own in, in an England shirt. And I thought, oh dear God, I'm probably a one-man, one-man advert for Brexit. This is terrible. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: but but the, the city is great. And then, and then after we went to Aachen we, we went up, only spent a few hours in Bruges uh, before we had to depart and get the ferry. I mean, this year, the tournament's in, um, it's in the south of Belgium. So we're going to do the same again, drive, get a ferry over, and then spend a bit more time in Bruges, explore there, and and then participate. And, you know, we also kind of, within doing this, you kind of advertise the the university department and ULAS, the commercial firm, there as well. And it's just, it's just really good hanging out with um, European archaeologists. And you know, depending on how things go over the next month or so, who knows when we'll be able to get to... De- do that again we might need special dispensation and all sorts of bureaucracy to be able to get over there in the future so embrace this while we can i think
0: yeah i imagine it is a really good way of building up relationships international relationships i guess you don't really know where some of those things might lead all it takes is hanging out with a couple of guys from say germany france or italy or wherever and having a couple of beers and who knows A couple of years down the line, you might be editing a volume together or organising a conference together. Or, you know, you might have ideas that you trade off across different research foci that kind of open your eyes in different ways. But, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about archaeology that I've always said that I've always found that archaeology is a subject, like widely speaking, whether it be commercial, academia, whatever. The people generally speaking in archaeology are very friendly and very down to earth. But right, actually, that, that's quite a pun. But there you go.
1: Well, no, I, and I, um, I mean, I think one of the the really sort of important things there is that, p- particularly when we talk about Roman archaeology and the Roman em- Empire, you know, kind of Anglophone Roman archaeology almost becomes its own little little thing in of itself. It becomes quite insular. It's its own little island. And and there are different reasons for that, I think. There are different philosophical trajectories. But it is also quite good to, you know, not only go to international conferences to hear what is being done by robot archaeologists and archaeologists more generally on the continent, but then also go to something like this that is broadly related to archaeology, but is explicitly not about the archaeology. So you're getting to know these these people in kind of a different kind of format, and then you can also talk about ology, archaeology, and I think that that kind of becomes quite useful. And I mean, it, it's interesting just saying those two things because the, the name, the, the Winkelmann Cup, it's, it's actually named after um, Johann Joachim Winkelmann. I don't know if I don't know if you know this or remember from uh, way back probably as an undergraduate, but he's more or less
0: sort of the founder of classical archaeology in, in a Germanic tradition. Yeah, I read, have you ever read the book uh, Gods, Graves and Scholars? It's quite a famous book, have you ever come I, across it? I can't say I have, no. Oh, it's, it's an interest, I mean, I don't know, it's like 50, 60, 70 years old. It's a book, though, about just various people in the history of archaeology in the last few hundred years, and it's very interesting to read, but uh, yeah, Vinkelman obviously in there as well, so I have come across his story before. But how's it going for you in terms of your of your PhD now? So what's what's the just recap for me? What's the PhD on?
1: So in a nutshell, I uh, I investigate Romano-British engagement with I suppose what I would call the the materiality of the prehistoric past, which for all intents and purposes for the thesis is prehistoric monuments. So I look at basically how these objects, in a way you could call them that. Are informing how Roman period landscapes are structured. And I think a really kind of a good kind of microcosm of that as to why that's not necessarily something that we usually talk about in a Romano British context is there's, a lot of material has been found that is Roman at Stonehenge, and there are features that are actually dug into the circle itself in the Roman period. Now, I challenge you to go and find a map of Roman Wiltshire that has Stonehenge on it. For instance, Stonehenge is thought of as, you know, intrinsically and resolutely prehistoric. And yet we find that there's a lot of Roman material associated with it. And the, and the more you investigate this, you more you find that this is actually quite common. And so... So that's fundamentally what I uh, what I investigate. Uh, I, I, I compare Wiltshire with the Peak District. So you've got two kind of disparate zones there within a Roman tradition that are also very very rich in prehistoric monumentality. And it's analysing the kind of the extent of Roman engagement with these places, the kind of the the spatial patterns of it, how that's manifested in various iterations. So, for instance, if you have um, a Bronze Age round barrow you can have Roman inhumations or cremations that are actually placed inside this prehistoric structure, you can have the deposition of materials, particularly coinage I think is the most in, most interesting one that uh, goes on inside these monuments as well so there are different kind of iterations of very similar practices but when you map it you find that this is a, a really sort of um, common occurrence and one that's Maybe been a little bit overlooked, I would argue. Well, of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? With <laughs> the traditional kind of narratives of Roman Britain, and you could extrapolate that from um, many of the north northwestern provinces, particularly.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I suppose yeah, you don't tend to think of the Roman occupation, the Roman government coming in, taking over Britain, and obviously with that comes a large military occupation. And obviously a lot of people coming into Britain, as well as obviously the people that are already there, and how in the Roman period people would engage with these prehistoric monuments, because I mean, it's much like now, I suppose, people talk about Stonehenge, and people have all these theories as, you know, people love to bound around these various theories about why Stonehenge was built, some of them are more crazy than others, but um, I imagine the similar sort of thing must have happened at the same time in the Roman period, because you turn up at Stonehenge, and you've got this this big kind of stone stone monument that's you know erected long before recent memory how do you how do you interpret that and how do you you know wh- what do you think it means and what do you think it means in terms of being somebody at that time in the roman world because your perception of the world in the roman period is going to be probably fairly different to someone's perception today uh, in many respects
1: absolutely i think i mean you draw the comparison between the roman stuff today because that. The time lag between, for instance, Bronze Age round barrows and to the Roman period would be kind of roughly sort of equivalent to us going to look at Fishbourne Roman Palace, for instance. It's the same time gap between between then and the Roman period and then the Roman period and today. And, of course, I think you're absolutely right when you say that they would have thought about it quite differently because we would think about it within a kind of historical linear narrative of, well, we know that this is old. We kind of know how old it is. We know it's not of our world. And we would look at it within those kind of historical terms. Whereas I think we can probably safely say that they wouldn't have perceived the world and time within that sort of framework anyway. So I think whether they would have looked at them and and thought they were old and then therefore venerated is, is kind of an interesting question. I think you can maybe go down a couple of blind alleys with this as well. And it's interesting that some of the literature on this in the past has always been, oh, well, it's it's clearly a sort of a, a manifestation of, say, kind of like a pagan revival in inverted commas, or a kind of de facto sort of resistance to, to a Roman imposition. Oh, we're returning to a way that things were. But kind of implied there is that well they understood what things were before the roman period and you know particularly stonehenge you're talking this is thousands of years prior this is this is probably kind of fundamentally alien so i don't think you can really think about it in terms of that sort of resistance and continuity and various other things i think actually these things are are a little bit more complex than that and there's um there's a guy um james whitley the classical archaeologist he wrote a paper in 2002 that i thought was great um called too many ancestors and his kind of interpretation of, of that was that when you talk about those sort of narratives it's very easy to go up to something as nebulous as yes it's ancestor worship and then and then bookend it and say it as if the story there is closed whereas i think you can do kind of more interesting things with that if you kind of look at the kind of the patterns. That emerge from the way, the different ways that these places are engaged with, and then map them onto how we understand the extent of how Roman landscapes are settled, how they're inhabited in different ways, and then see what relations there are between those sites and and contemporary Roman sites. And one of the one of the kind of interesting things that I've seen from my research is just kind of how regionally different that is as well i mean you have to caveat that with i'm looking at the peak district and wiltshire and these are well they're different zones one of them is a a national park and so you're not going to have kind of our knowledge of archaeology in the roman period up there developing piecemeal in the way that you would for wiltshire because nobody's building a, a national park and, and the, there are archaeological traditions there that have prioritised certain types of site, but in the Peak District, there are 14 potential forts up there that, again, they, they haven't been investigated kind of intensively, certainly not in the way that antiquarian investigation was interested in the prehistoric tumuli that were up there. But what's come, what is interesting is, from the work that has been done, is that the hill forts reveal no evidence of Roman material culture or engagement with them in any form whatsoever in the Peak District. Now, in Wiltshire, that's just not the case. The hill forts are used in one case, like Old Serum, for instance. You have a Roman town that emerges out of it, and others become a, a foci for coin hoarding, for instance. So there are different kind of patterns that begin to emerge, and I think that when we kind of explore that in relation to how contemporary Roman settlement is going on, becomes quite interesting. And when I say contemporary as well, what, what is quite interesting is that the majority of this in both regions occurs within the 3rd and 4th centuries.
0: Oh, good old late antiquity.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I never thought I would have been interested in the later Roman period, but, you know, you go where the evidence is, and that's more or less exclusively what I read now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting stuff, though, because just more broadly uh what you're saying about like depositions and yeah. you know to, how do you interpret these things and, and to what degree could you consider them to be you know ritual activity obviously if we don't understand it's always ritual but it's it's interesting because there's never really been to to my knowledge a fairly overarching synthesis of ritual practice particularly in the northwestern provinces in late antiquity you know, my own kind of era of research, which is the the end of non Christian cults in late antiquity, there's 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 so much that we still don't know. And there's a lot more that's coming out now in terms of excavations of temple sites where it's quite clear that, you know, some temples are being repaired, some are being built well into the fourth century. And there's clearly those shifts going on in how people conduct their ritual practices. I mean, one of the things that seems to really become very common is dropping coins in temples or particular areas of temples which doesn't seem to be so apparent previously uh, it happens in the cold mithras but it happens elsewhere as well but it's interesting what you're saying though about how this material that you're looking at so you're saying that these depositions largely are from the third and fourth century you're not getting so much evidence from the second century or the first century no.
1: no not at all and that's in both regions as well i mean i think you could explain that kind of in a very traditional way for Wiltshire, for instance, because, you know, you have in that landscape, and particularly in the southwest more generally, you know, you have the emergence of villas and rural shrines, as, you know, you kind of alluded to there, within the third and fourth century. So you would sort of expect that, you know, within that, i put this in inverted commas because, you know, there is evidence that suggests that this is simplistic, but that kind of movement into the rural areas from the towns is kind of manifested in the the extent of later rural settlement and the building of villas and the um, the rural shrines that you would then expect these these monuments, these prehistoric monuments that exist in the landscape, to therefore kind of sort of become active as part of that as well. Um, mm. But as I say, that's also true in the Peak District, which is you know a, a different zone in terms of its Roman archaeology, you know, in Wiltshire there's not really much of a military presence that we're aware of, whereas in the Peak District, for instance, you know, it's populated mostly by forts and small farms, so small farms, and then there's there's one villa. And yet the patterns are the same, which I, I think is really quite interesting.
0: Do you get much in the way of Roman authors that talk about prehistoric monuments or allude to prehistoric monuments at all i mean obviously what you're doing is is largely based on the archaeological evidence but i was just wondering have you ever come across any ancient authors that that talk about the these kind of things or or at least as say allude to them if it's not overly apparently clear what they're talking about but they seem to be discussing them not not really explicitly and i think but that might be because you know largely you're thinking of, in a British context, there's not really much sources that we have. Anyway, mm.
1: so for Britain, no. I mean, there are certain things that kind of allude to a, a sense of pastness, if you like. I mean, Hesiod, for instance, talks about the, the five stages of time. And I'm aware that um in Greece somewhere, I can't remember where now, um, but during the Roman period, they found... Um, mammoth bones and they were put in a sort of, um, we can call it kind of like a a proxy ancient museum if you like, and they're referred to as bones of the giants, bones of their ancestors. So they're sort of, in certain cases, in certain places, they're kind of aware of a sense of pastness, but for Britain and its prehistoric monuments, no, in the Roman period. I mean, interestingly, in Britain, when you go into the medieval period, there there is a, a sort of a folkloric and mythological narrative about these places. Actually, you know, so places for fairies, for instance, and even Beowulf is explicitly sort of set uh, some some people believe within prehistoric round barrels. Although Howard Williams has done a, a paper on that quite recently that says actually scholars have sort of overstated that. A little bit. But for the Roman period it's just it's just not there for Britain in terms of any sort of source material.
0: Yeah, I love that stuff though. This whole idea of what did the Romans think of dinosaur bones and Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's such it's, it's a fascinating question. And as as you were saying as well, I I find it quite interesting as well, the kind of medieval reconstructions of the past, which they've grabbed this name and that name and you know, this person has been put in there, which doesn't really bear much resemblance to you know what actually happened but it's very interesting how those things get there there are kind of names and places that are true in there but they get so distorted into this narrative i mean i suppose the famous one's geoffrey of monmouth and his um history of is it history of britain or history of the kings of britain or whatever it's called is you know he just completely fabricates a lot of stuff but there are names and places in there that 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 are true but it's it's i just find it fascinating how when you go to school you're kind of taught about history in kind of blocks you know, it goes from the Romans to the Anglo-Saxons to the Normans to whatever. And obviously, like, you know, there's all kind of problems with that anyway. But this idea of, well, what did the Anglo-Saxons actually think of the Romans? And what did the Romans actually think of, uh, you know, neo- like evidence from the Neolithic or whatever? Or, you know, cave paintings, if they came across them. It's very interesting how these different periods of history interact with each other if that makes sense and how they ah. they interpret them I find that I just find that very fascinating how you know it, we've got to the point we're at today but how these different I say periods particularly of British history really interest me how they interweave like I find very uh, antiquarians are very interesting people like when I had Giacomo on the podcast a few weeks ago and he was talking about that and talking about this engraving that he had related to a bathhouse in Rome which actually turned out to not be they thought it was an image of a wall painting but it wasn't actually a real wall painting but it really affected people's interpretations for a long time afterwards like it was a it was a painting that had been made centuries and centuries later but people thought it was an original and I just find those kind of stories really interesting as well like you know how the as I say the different periods of history kind of interact with each other no,
1: uh, absolutely and I think Hill, which is the um, the largest human-made mound in Europe, is quite an interesting one that that fits into the, sort of the two things that you said there. So initially, and it's an antiquarian interpretation. Some people thought that um, it was a Roman monument. I mean, there's a Roman road that goes next to it. They thought, oh yes, it's um, it's there for sighting along the road or something. And then, of course, you know, as archaeology develops. They realise that actually this is this is a Neolithic monument. But then what what's also kind of interesting there is that um, recently there was some I think it was about ten years ago there was some survey work done and then some evaluation trenches put in in the fields south of Sil- Silbury Hill, um, which goes next to the the road as well. And there's a there's a Roman roadside settlement there that we hadn't known much about before that you know manifests all the sort of same characteristics of a roadside settlement that, that you would expect, but it's plonked right next to this massive Neolithic monument. And then you see, I don't know, you start thinking about that within different kind of time periods, and you think, well, you can't really understand this roadside settlement in of itself. It, part of its meanings probably emerge because of its relationship to the hill. And I think kind of, Theoretically, one thing that I'd be quite minded to say would be that, well, then Silbury Hill, in a way, this this will probably be contentious if there's if there's any prehistorians to
0: uh, listening to this, um, they'd be throwing things at the wall. But I think you could possibly uh, send us well, your email. You know, <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. In a sense, that Silbury Hill it therefore becomes Roman
0: because it is playing a role
1: in how the Roman landscape develops, and it becomes Roman in different ways as well as material deposited the ditch that looks for all intents and purposes like a middle as so, well. So it's the, the, the monument itself is engaged with. But I think this also kind of um brings up a point that, that you and Andy Gardner in your one of your earlier podcasts kind of talked about, which is different time periods, perhaps not talking to each other. And this, you know, when you mentioned earlier that at school we like to parcel up periods in the past. I mean we do that academically as well you know we're both roman specialists in Mm. a way um and therefore that excludes kind of certain evidence because we're looking at a defined period of time that you know is real uh, you know and that exists in terms of its material culture that makes it a real period but it also doesn't mean that things of the past aren't active within how the later periods is manifested in how people are living out their daily lives. And I think there's a really brilliant quote from the anthropologist Tim Ingold on that. He, um, he talks about landscapes. This was, this was in a 1993 paper. But he talks about landscapes always being pregnant with the past at all times. And I think, I think that's absolutely right. And because of that, the, the way that things are engaged with it, It in the Roman period, would, I would argue, argue make them of Britain in the Roman period as well. And therefore, if we analyse it, if we map it, if we start exploring relationships within a Roman contextual environment, I think we can arrive at different narratives of the Roman period in Britain that maybe have been a bit hitherto
0: overlooked. That's really interesting because it just reminds me as well of when I was talking to Zena on the podcast and we were discussing about the age of Instagram. And I was saying how people now go to the, the Coliseum or the Forum or, or go to different monuments and take pictures in front of them and don't necessarily have any idea what the monument is. And that kind of question of is that in any way demeaning the monument? Because I think it's not in terms of the fact that it's, it's, the, it's another chapter in the biography of the monument. It's yeah. just very interesting how those, how monuments change and, I mean, like, were, well, their use changes and the people's approach to them changes. As I say, the Colosseum, I always find an interesting example of that. You know, you go to Rome now, you take your picture in front of the Colosseum, there's loads of tourists wandering around. But, you know, it was it was a place where tons of people died. It's, it's just fascinating, though, how a monument like that, how it passes down through the centuries and how its use and people's, as I say, approach towards it alters over time and you know we still think of the colosseum as being a roman monument but the colosseum is now very much a modern monument in terms of tourism in rome you know it's got a it's got a different use but it's a it is part of modern rome it doesn't exist in this there's not like a vacuum that surrounds it where you're stepping back in time it's part of the modern the modern city i suppose in some respects do you think that sometimes people have ignored that about prehistoric monuments because they're not masonry they're not like physical buildings in that respect do you think that's that's affected people's perception of them in terms of you know how are these things interpreted in the roman period
1: um possibly i haven't thought about that question um, i mean i would say i think that materially i think i think that perhaps that hasn't made a difference i think i think that that, that is a question that hasn't really been explored for anything in terms of, um, yes, you know, you talk about the Colosseum, um, and it's an ongoing monument, but it's still quintessentially Roman. And that, you know, that is exactly the same for something um, like Avebury, which is the hen- one of the super henges in Wiltshire. is It's thought of as a fundamentally Neolithic monument, even though it has a very active Bronze Age period role. And I think that becomes quite interesting, because I think that's actually kind of written into a, a heritage Gender as well, and like maybe two really good examples in different ways would be would be Avery, and then another one might be Pompeii. We we talk about each of these sites as a snapshot in time, particularly for like Pompeii and Herculaneum, for instance. You know, you, you think of them as the moment at the end of their life when you know much archaeological research has been done on the earlier phases. Gets spoken about, and in its public imagination, it is a Roman monument that is associated with sorry, a Roman town that is associated.
0: Interesting. I, I just find it fascinating. I find it fascinating how things get reinterpreted and reused, etc. say so the biography, particularly of monuments, in particularly the digital age now, is something that I find truly fascinating, how people approach them. There was something I wanted to ask you about really quickly while we're still on the topic of your, of your academic output. And, I mean, this was something you published a while ago, so don't get cross with me, but you know where I'm going with this. You published a journal article on crucifixion, am I right? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, what was yeah, that? Well, how did you How did you get onto that? You know, your your kind of main focus. I mean, your your undergraduate dissertation, which was prize winning. Am I right? Or was that the MA dissertation? Oh yes, it
1: was. Yeah, that was on uh, uh, Roman bath.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So your your tint has always been towards, shall we say, uh, Roman Britain? You know, aspects yeah. of of uh, the landscape. How did you end up writing something on crucifixion?
1: It emerged actually from when I was a master's student as. Um, a a, a kind of long-form research project for for a module on violence in antiquity, and and I decided to look at crucifixion there, and then you kind of realise that not really a lot, interestingly quite a bit's been done since then on this topic, but not a lot had been done about Roman crucifixion since the 70s really, there was this one big book about it, well actually it was a very short book, and then kind of the topic kind of fell into abeyance. And then the more I looked at it, the more I thought, nobody's really looked at this from an archaeological lens. And in that, I don't mean the remains, as far as I'm aware. We still have only one instance in all of the archaeological records that relates to potentially a crucifixion, which is a, a nail going through someone's ankle, which comes from Judea. But I mean it in more, more in terms of how you would think about how kind of landscapes of of death and crucifixion would be engaged with so you think of for instance when the um the spartacus rebellion is put down and the accounts are that the the appian way was full of crucifixions or so three thousand crucifixions lining the appian way and uh the general i think it was crassus if i remember rightly put put that down he then had uh an ovation ceremony which is similar to the triumph but not quite as important because to have a triumph you have to beat foreign foes and beating um, a bunch of slaves is obviously not important enough (laughs) uh, for him to have a triumph so he had a, a very similar thing and his procession room would have gone through the Appian Way with with these bodies on display as they're being crucified and I thought that's absolutely fascinating because that seems to me like a, a resolutely archaeological question about how a ceremony and a procession would engage with this kind of explicit landscape of death so I, I kind of wrote a paper about that and I thought it was before I, uh, I, was, I think was working in commercial archaeology at the time with kind of a mind to do a PhD and I thought yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed writing this. I wonder, I wonder if maybe get, uh, maybe submit it to a journal, get reviewed, see what see what they say about it. Uh, and yes, it was published. And uh, I mean, it's it's quite interesting now, Dave, because um, I I think it might have been put on a reading list somewhere because I I get so many notifications on Academia say it's been downloaded from all over the world. So I wonder if it's on a distance learning module. It's got you know. It, it, sexy topic
0: for archaeology i suppose in a way <laughs> but um yeah well i so, suppose it's uh, obviously it's got its uh religious connotations to it as well there's probably a lot of people that are interested when you see crucifixion, yeah. fiction There's the, the obvious example that springs to yeah. mind in the roman world so yeah, yeah i mean well, it's, it's, a, it's an attractive topic yeah exactly i mean i mean since then actually
1: um there's a guy called gunnar samuelson who did a big study uh you know a, an ancient historical study of texts that refer to crucifixion. I think he's got um, a second volume of that out
0: now. So, it, you know, it, it's kind of a topic that's kind of back in vogue, really. Just to go back on your... You mentioned there about working in commercial archaeology. Are you still working <laughs> for the Portable Antiquity Scheme as well, or has that come to an end now?
1: No, no, that was... that was um, a a placement I organised, you know, and um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate enough to have my PhD funded by well, the Midlands Three Cities Consortium, as was, I think it's been extended to four now. And as part of that, you're encouraged to organise placements. Um, and I thought, well, do you know what, I I really love objects, and I don't get to do enough with them, and there's there's much more to learn. So I organised this placement with the portable antiquity scheme who were you know very gracious enough to let me come along and learn um and it's finished now it was um it was for six months uh during the course of 2018 but uh, you know it was was an absolutely brilliant kind of experience Um, but one you know i'm sat i'm sat there here's an object you know it could be it could be absolutely anything it was uh, there was a like um medieval armorial horse furniture for instance that was discovered and was put in front of me. that i know absolutely zero about and then you go you research it you find the typological example you learn about it put it into a sort of wider context and then create an entry for it and i actually thought you know comparing it to doing a phd it was a, a kind of a really good antidote to it because you know as you know PhDs are long form. There's lots of rabbit holes. Week by week, you can say yes, I was intending to do this, and then later in the week you find yourself at a completely different point. And the, I think doing the PAS and recording objects was a really really good answer to that because it was as I say, here's an object, find out about it, write a paragraph about it, boom, there's an entry, and that's great. And it was it was it was so much fun in that respect. But then, um, we liaised with. Metal detecting clubs, which is, you know, kind of the the real nuts and bolts of the important stuff that the PAS do, is maintaining those relationships between two communities that historically were antagonistic, but now, because of the PAS largely, relations are, are much better. And then you get to do open days as well, and get children particularly handling objects and get them talking about it, which uh, which is a a brilliant experience. I mean, there is um, there is one little kind of amusing anecdote. One 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 kid who was there with us on a fine day was uh, I gave him some flint and asked asked the kid what they thought it was and so on. We had a discussion about that and then and then one of the parents said, "Well, how how do you identify it? How do you know these things?" And for worked flint, I said I, I heard myself saying that. The, Oh, I, I find it's it's kind of best to close your eyes, shut your senses off from that point, and rely on instinct and your hands to feel where where it would get bulbous. You know, that's that's kind of one of the markers of identifying this stuff. And then, and I thought about it afterwards, and I thought I basically told someone to shut the mind off of their senses, and or, or one sense, and rely on instinct. I think. I've basically told someone that the best way to identify um workflow is by using the force. <laughs> 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 but, um, but because of because of um, opportunities like that and, and doing open days, you know, you've got real brilliant experience of of finds in different in different kind of environments. Yeah, it was really cool. Sadly, that's ended now.
0: Yeah, I imagine it must be a really good string to add to your bow as well, just going through objects, identifying them, as you say, putting them in a wider context, just knowing what to look for on objects, how to go about, as you say, looking for them in the the typologies and coming to a conclusion about, oh, this dates to hereabouts, this was used for this. It, it's just one of those things. I imagine the process in itself is quite a it's quite a good one to go through. As an archaeologist, it, it adds another, another perspective on, on things and makes you more of a well-rounded archaeologist. Because now, yeah, so I suppose you've got, you know, you're doing the PhD, you've got commercial experience, and now you've done the stuff with the Portable antiquity Scheme. I mean, you are, you're kind of ticking a lot of boxes there. You're becoming the complete archaeologist.
1: <laughs> I mean, as a result, I now have an interest in Roman coins that I never thought I would
0: have. <laughs> oh, coins are great. Like, coins are just... When you find, when you see a decent Roman coin, like a decently well-preserved Roman coin, you I, I actually find them really fascinating. Like, being able to see the emperor's portrait on it and looking at the details of that and looking at the titles they have and the symbol that they put on the other side as well. Coins are something that really in the last few years that I've started to appreciate a lot more as well. I find them yeah. really fascinating because... You know, as we have touched on earlier, I mean, coins, we think of in the modern world as being largely of uh, an economic value. But obviously, they don't have a purely economic value. There's a lot of other aspects to to coinage, one of them being it's a way of communicating power. And I find, I just find that as like, and particularly, they're a very effective way of doing so because they're so portable. But yeah, they, they are very interesting objects. And as you say, they're quite quite often used particularly in later periods for ritual practice as well so they they do have almost a religious dimension to them as well
1: yes, absolutely i mean obviously you right we do think think of them in the main as currency and of course it's different for the kind of the later iron age coins in britain because whether they were used in the same way is extremely debatable but they're also the iron age um experts on this are really really good at analyzing them in different contexts i think for the roman period historically we have looked at them in more of an economic way and I think um, I think track was kind of actually really important early on in changing the way that we can think about coins in archaeological contexts and as you say we particularly actually in the 3rd and 4th centuries in Britain you know you find these low value bronze coins deposited in hoards deposited together within contexts that are curious for example like prehistoric monuments and so yeah there are there are really different avenues but just from a coin perspective as well it's it's really quite nice now to be able to to look at them and say yep yeah, that's um that's a coin of i mean well, for the third and fourth centuries you mostly rely on reverse type to kind of identify it really but you're, you're able to say yes that that dates to a certain period here's here's the the inscription and here's is the potential inscriptions that it could be based on this type and that's it's really quite satisfying being able to do that
0: yeah yeah i can see why richard Reese spent so many years on coins now <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. yeah i will say one thing quickly though i looked up about uh your experience as a fines liaison officer online yeah. and have you seen where you've got the little interview thing the picture of you standing on top of is it or like looking up into the distance <laughs>
1: yeah
0: Very, very inspiring stuff.
1: (laughs) I I, I wish I could tell you where that was, but um, I'm really not supposed to because I wasn't supposed to be where that was. Oh, really?
0: Okay. Say no more, say no more. Just take me back then for a little bit so you know you've you've come through well the system i'd say i suppose at leicester from undergraduate to master's phd as i've documented previously on the podcast i too am leicester alumni i did my master's and i really liked being at leicester how is it though you came to you came to be studying uh, archaeology ancient history at leicester what what drew you to the subject initially
1: by accident, I, th- I think. Suppose <laughs> it's maybe a, quite a popular answer for this. Um, I was I was always really good at history at school. It was one of the one of the few things that actually that grabbed my attention. And then after after sixth form, I, I took a couple of years out and didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And then in that time, where where I'm from, which is Lancaster in the northwest, there were some commercial excavations that were going on. Um, Lancaster is a, there's an auxiliary Roman fort up there, a, a large one and then a, an extramural settlement. And there was some developer-led archaeology going on and they found a tombstone in the ground that was, well, it was kind of cut in half but it was in really good nick.
0: It's, it's a horse and rider tombstone, a tombstone of incest. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I might have come across it. I can think of a few examples in my head but I don't know if it's the right one.
1: And, and I just thought, Wow, that's cool. And so that would have been, I think, 2005. So then I kind of developed then a sort of interest in thinking maybe I'd, maybe I'd like to do this. And then I wasn't about it for a while. And then I saw that Lester, you know, I was looking up different programs and Lester appeared quite high on their, their algorithm, I think, as it would have been at the time in Google. that um, I was able to see they did ancient history and archaeology and I thought well that's interesting and this this Roman stuff in the town that I'm from seems quite interesting maybe I could go and study the Roman period and then it'd be nice to do archaeology as well because my thinking at the time was oh I could get a skill out of it and then maybe have a job as well because you know you're thinking at the time not really understanding these things Thinking, how often do you look in the paper and see a job for a historian so I thought it'd be quite nice to have a, a skill in archaeology as well So, so that kind of led me to that route, and then yeah, I stayed at Leicester all all the way through. I've been here a long time now, actually. Z, yeah, I did, my, seen, did my maths here as well.
0: Seen Richard the Third discovered yeah. and Leicester win the Premier League. I doubt you ever went to went to an open day or whatever, or when you first signed up to go to yeah. Leicester. You think those would be those things would be happening during your time there, particularly the, but, the winning the league. <laughs> but
1: especially that, I think when I I can't remember at what point it would have been when I was here, but they um I think they were in the the third tier of English
0: football when I arrived. So I mean, we, yeah. you know
1: said that that was going to happen. You'd have been. You'd have been left, left out of the
0: place. When I was, when I was doing my MA at Leicester, I worked part time in the stadium. Yeah. So at the time they would have been, I think they were championship at the time. So yeah, that, that idea that a few years down the line, they would have been winning the league. It was just crazy at the time. Just no, no way that was going to, going to happen. I think
1: yeah, I think they strike them a and demand a, a winner's medal or something. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I always said that. I was like, I went to Leicester, and then like within a few years, they found Richard the Third, and Leicester won the league. And I was I doing archaeology there, and I worked at the stadium. I maybe. mean, you, it doesn't take a genius to work out the correlation there.
1: <laughs> correlation is
0: causation. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me, yeah, me, they're responsible for discovering Richard the Third as well. Just nobody can promote <laughs> it. There, there you go. The truth finally unveiled. <laughs> Right. Very quickly, I suppose, just to mention as well, you you will be at track in a couple of weeks. By the time this episode goes out, the the registration will have finished, but you will be you will be presenting. I think you're presenting in the general session, which I'm chairing yeah. as well. So make sure you get your paper bang on time, because I don't let you overrun. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And have you got anything else though you you'd like to to promote at all?
1: No, not really. I think you you covered the uh, the and Cup at, at first. That was that was the main thing I wanted to plug. I suppose uh, in terms of keep keep an eye out on the um, the Journal of Material Religion, and I'll have a, a review of Miranda Aldhouse Green's book that came out last year, Sacred.
0: I haven't actually read it yet. I've seen it in Waterstones a few times. I do need to get it. What's the scoop? What yay or nay? What do you think? Uh, yay,
1: yay. I think yeah. yeah it's, cool. um, it, it covers a lot of ground, and and it's it's very good at doing it, and she's made it relevant for. Today, there's kind of narratives of, of Brexit and Donald Trump in there as well. So it's it's definitely worth reading, and it's it's very informative and, you know, covers as best it can as a, a broad-brush thing, um, kind of the t- totality of religious experience in Britain from the beginning of the Roman Age to the end of it. So, yeah, def-
0: definitely worth reading. But, of course, I think you should probably read the review first. <laughs> yeah, again. yeah. Get more of an in-depth analysis, and then then make your mind up.
1: Absolutely,
0: right, brilliant. Well, thanks for thanks a lot for doing this.
1: No, no, no. Thank, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
0: No worries, man. I'll see you soon. at track.
1: Absolutely, see you, Dave.